Thank you, Philip. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you again today. It's been uh, a nice couple weeks that I've enjoyed here, along with my wife, uh, this last week. And I uh, really do appreciate uh, many kindnesses that have been shown to us, to my wife and to, to myself and to Cheryl. So thank you for that. I'll be preaching today, and then this evening, uh, one more time, we'll be looking at the Word of God together. But let's turn this morning uh, now to Acts uh, chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1, and we'll read the first 14 verses of this chapter. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to this passage, and uh, you do have an outline that you can take some notes on uh, in your bulletin. Our subject uh, or title for today's sermon is Our Church. We've gone through some R's, O-U-R, as I've been here with you. And this morning we're thinking about our church. And I trust 
that everyone present here cares about the church, about this church, if you're a part of this church, if you're a member of this church, uh, but also about the Church of Christ worldwide. Uh, More specifically, as we think about our church, the question we want to ask this morning is, what kind of a church does God use? And I hope you're concerned about that question as well. You want your church, the church you're a part of, to be fulfilling God's purposes. And as we're thinking about God's purposes for the church, we're concentrating this morning uh, on his purposes of saving lost people, of discipleship, and of church growth. So an even fuller title of the sermon is, What Kind of Church Does God Use to Reach the Lost, Disciple the Saved, and Plant New Churches? And before we attempt to answer that question, I'd like to ask two preliminary questions that may be on your mind. The first preliminary question is this. Is this a good question to ask at all? Is it a good question to ask, how will God bless a church so that there's growth and evangelism and discipleship? Uh, Some might actually answer no to that question, that you shouldn't be thinking about these things, about growth. We, We shouldn't talk about those things. There was a time uh, years ago when I think the assumption was that all churches should be growing and if one was not, the church should change or close its doors. Growth was everything and perhaps that was going too far. But today, some may almost be uncomfortable with us talking about this subject. They may feel that we're going, uh, being extreme the other way. We, they maybe say that uh, we shouldn't talk about methods or purposes or things like that. We should just do... Uh, Just worship God and and, uh, expect that he will bless without us even considering these things. And I think sometimes in the church we we go back and forth in our our times in the church of maybe going an overemphasis one way and then um, to an extreme emphasis the other way. But let me say very uh, strongly this morning that we should be concerned about these things and about whether the church is fulfilling God's purposes in these areas. Jesus said that he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against that progress of his church. In the parables of Jesus, uh, you definitely get the idea of an all-encompassing kind of growth that will happen as Christ leaves and sends his Holy Spirit. The parables of Jesus sound that note. In a recent article in uh, Table Talk magazine, uh, our Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary president, Barry York, wrote, until he finally returns, the Lord still has elect sheep to bring into the fold of God. Shepherding a congregation involves evangelistic outreach. Churches that do not actively search for the lost demonstrate a lack of regard for the shepherd when they worship, whom they worship, for he came to seek and to save the lost. The most important purpose for all of us and for the church is to glorify God. And evangelism brings glory to God as people are brought in out of darkness into light. 
Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.15 that as this grace extends to more and more people, it increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. As people are brought to know Christ and give thanks for God's salvation, and as we come together, this glorifies God. So evangelism and discipleship and church growth is an important subject for us to consider. The second preliminary question I want to ask is, where shall we go to find our answer to this question, what kind of church does God use? Well, we're not interested primarily in sociological studies or even primarily in modern-day illustrations of growth in the church. These do have some value, but in matters of faith and life, Scripture is our only infallible guide, isn't it? Jesus loves his church. He calls his church his bride. He gave his life for us in his church and those who will someday enter it. Should we not expect, therefore, that the Bible would give us a great deal of instruction about the function of the church? We should expect that, and the Bible does get that instruction, and particularly in the book of Acts, which records the beginning of the New Testament church, we have that kind of instruction about the work of the church and the purpose of the church and the growth of the church. Acts, the book of Acts, exposes many principles regarding conversion and discipleship and expansion of the church. These principles, properly recognized, are of divine authority, are of great value, and are of timeless application. And particularly the first 15 chapters of Acts contain some of these principles, and they contain at least 12 recognizable and abiding principles which apply to this subject. And today I'd like to walk you through three of these which appear in chapters 1 and 2. And if you notice the outline that's in your uh, bulletin there, if you just go to the back of the bulletin, you'll see a more extensive outline that has these uh, 12 principles that I believe really are uh, in the first 15 chapters of Acts. And we're not going to try to cover all those uh, by any means today. I might just note that uh, one of those is being united that we're not going to talk about. But if a church is not united or if, or if the unity begins to, to fall apart, that could be really something Satan uses and the destructive uh, to, to the church and to God's work. Another one of the principles I think about as I look at those is uh, number seven, a church meets the legitimate physical and material needs of its members. Uh, we won't touch on that today, but that's even in Acts chapter two, though we won't, won't go there. So there are lots of principles here, and uh, I would encourage you to use this later personally as a Bible study for yourself to look up some of these verses and pray about them and about yourself and about your church here. But this morning, we're going to focus on uh, the first three of these. And the first uh, is God uses a church which relies on the Holy Spirit. Number one on your outline. God uses a church which relies 
on the Holy Spirit. Let's look back at our passage that we've read and look at verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 1. Uh, while, they, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus said, Stay put in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in verse 8, uh, he said to them, you will be my witnesses, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, on, come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in these extending areas. And so we find the apostles and the other Christians in verse 12 doing exactly what Jesus said. They returned to Jerusalem and they went to the upper room and we have the disciples listed there. And also there were others uh, of the other disciples, not just the apostles, but also women together with them, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even Jesus' brothers, which is one of the indications that uh, his brothers did come to faith in him after his resurrection. And so they waited, and, and as Jesus had promised in chapter 2, which we wouldn't, haven't read, but we're going to look at on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day was Come, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit. You may have thought, uh, as I began the sermon or as you saw the title of the sermon, that we're going to talk a lot today about activity and doing things. You need to do this, you need to do that. And there are things certainly that the church needs to do and many things I see you as a church doing. But the first thing we realize is that we need to pause and we need to wait for the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek God through his Holy Spirit. As I planned to preach on this subject a long time ago, I wasn't really thinking about this. I was thinking about other things. But when I read Acts 1 and Acts 2, the reliance on the Spirit just jumps out at you. It's like, how did I miss that? And a prominent feature through the whole book of Acts are repeated references to the Spirit's leading. I've counted 11 times where the Spirit is described in Acts as doing such things as giving Christians boldness giving them words to speak, the Spirit uh, giving guidance, the Spirit giving power. The church depends on the Holy Spirit to, fruit, to produce fruit in any and all of its efforts. I don't believe that we should take the view, however, which birthed the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s. Those Christians believed that they needed a first-time baptism of the Holy Spirit. They believed they were Christians, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so they asked for that, and they believed that that's what they received back at that time. And they thought that it would be, uh, it would be accompanied with tongue-speaking as they read uh, the book of Acts. I don't believe that was correct. They waited. They believed they received that. The day of Pentecost, however, as we look at Scripture carefully, was a special day in redemptive history. 
It was a point where Jesus, returning to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit to fill the church for all time. I don't believe that there will be another Pentecost any more than there will be another birth or death or resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has accomplished our salvation, and he has provided the Spirit to his church. The Bible teaches that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who receives him as Savior, also receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you, the seal that you're a Christian and of the inheritance you have in heaven. But having said that, it doesn't mean that we don't need the Spirit's uh, grace in our lives and work in our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't need to be relying on the Spirit. So what does it mean to rely on the Spirit? How should we rely on the Spirit? Well, let me answer that with four statements very quickly. It means to pray and seek a greater filling of the Spirit. Pentecost may not come again, but periods of the Holy Spirit's work do come in power. And there are times of revival, and that has happened in the church's history. So we need to pray for and seek a greater filling of the Spirit. We may not be Pentecostals, but we do believe in the reality and power of God. Now that you have received the Spirit and been born again and been given life in him, Paul says things in his letters like uh, he exhorts us to walk in the Spirit. He calls us to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.18. He calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.8. To keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. As someone has said, we are leaky vessels always needing to be refilled daily. Second, we can rely on the Spirit by reading God's Word. Ever since the closing of the canon of Scripture, that all of the books were included, the Holy Spirit has guided his church, how? By a diligent use of the Bible. And it's still the same today. In the scriptures, we find the overall doctrines that we are to believe, and we see many principles which can guide the church as we determine methods of ministry, as we've been saying. So we read the scriptures. Third, pray together as a church. Not only pray personally for uh, keeping in step with the Spirit and a greater filling of the Spirit, but Pray together as a church as we seek to know God's will. In Acts 1, verse 14, the 120 were praying, as we notice, before Pentecost. In Acts 4, 23, the church prayed and the Holy Spirit filled them with boldness. In Acts 7, 6, the apostles laid their hands on and prayed over the first deacons. Acts 9, 11, it says that Saul, later called Paul, was praying before the Lord sent Ananias to baptize him. And it's particularly important for the elders to pray together. In Antioch, in in chapter 13 of Acts, it was while the prophets and teachers were praying, it was then that the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for for the missionary work that they were about to accomplish in the later chapters of Acts. Your elders do pray together, and I encourage them to do that. Pray together as a church. It's not each of us only individually praying here and there, but to rely on the Spirit, we come together and pray. 
many of uh, the church plants and congregations in our own denomination that have grown and been blessed by God, I, I should say all, but at times it's very obvious that certain ones of those or many of them have been those where careful planning and prayer took place. Sometimes there was a period of stopping and reconsidering. Easy methods were not always latched onto, and what appeared to be simple solutions were not always taken if they seemed to be in conflict with God's word. Hard work and patience were very important. And the fourth thing I'd say about relying on the Spirit is that the gifts of all should be developed in the church. This should be done under the direction of the leaders and be used in concert for the growth and building up the body. It's not one person saying, well, I'm gifted in this, so I must do this. I have this gift, so you must allow me to take, this act, take on this activity in the church. But it's, it's us being open to uh, the Lord's instruction and showing us often by experience and by the counsel of others what some of the gifts God has given us are. And it's listening to our leaders and not going out on this uh, way, this path or that path on our own, but as a church, again, working together. One of the things that has impressed me while I've been here at your congregation is how many people are involved in different sorts of ministry and how many different ministries God is blessing you with. And at least in an initial uh, being here, these things to be, seem to be being done in concert. Uh, in unity, and I commend you for that. Congregation, if you desire to see people saved and sanctified and the church growing, rely on God's Holy Spirit by praying for his filling, by studying his word, by seeking his direction, and by using the gifts he has given to you. Psalm 37, 4 says, Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. Psalm 130 my soul waits for the Lord. Secondly, we see from the book of Acts that God uses a church which preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. The second point on your line, outline. God uses a church that, which preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. And again, we see this uh, from Acts, particularly as we go further into chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit there at the beginning of chapter 2 did come upon the apostles and those uh, assembled in the upper room, Peter uh, was compelled to stand up and preach. In uh, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Here at Pentecost were gathered uh, Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem at that time for the feast, and now on the day of Pentecost, they're gathered and they, this, these things happen with the apostles and people come together, and Peter stands up to, to preach. And what he does is he preaches Christ crucified. This is the heart of his message. If you look at verses 22 through 24 of chapter 2, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, He doesn't say many things in that short paragraph, but he really encapsulates the gospel. He says who Jesus is, and he reminds them of what Jesus has done. And he goes on and says much more in it. But he's preaching Christ and him crucified. That's the heart of his message. And that was the message that Paul uh, proclaimed also, as you remember, in Corinthians, where he said, as he described his preaching in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 5, Paul said, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weaknesses and fear and much trembling. And my my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of of God. And then later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about the things of first importance that he emphasized. He says, For I have delivered to you of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to his disciples. Peter preached Christ and him crucified. This is our message. This is the message that should come from the pulpit. This is the message that should come from our mouths in various ways as we speak to people about the gospel. Peter's message also was gripping. If you go on to verse, uh, in Acts 2, if you go on to verse 37. Now when they heard this, when the people heard Peter's message, They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So as the Holy Spirit worked through the preaching of Christ and him crucified, there didn't need to be an altar call. The people themselves said, How should we respond? And Peter uh, was quick to answer in the next verses. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. So Peter's message was Christ crucified, and it was convicting, and it caused people to want to know how to respond. And the answer given was very simple, repent of sin and put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. May God, the Lord God, keep giving uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church good preachers, godly preachers, well-trained, ones who are committed to Christ and to the scriptures. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Romans 10, 13 through 15. There is a famine of the word of God in our world today. We need preachers who proclaim the whole word of God. In the pulpits of our churches on the Lord's days, but we also need preachers who will go from house to house and into the highways and byways of society and call people to come in. Our children must hear and believe in order to be saved, and the unchurched must also be evangelized. Observe what was the result of the preached word there in Acts 2.41. 3,000 people were added to the church. There were 120 that day at the beginning, and now there are 3,120. We long for such to occur in our day. Let us never forget that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The third thing we see God using in these first two chapters of the book of Acts, God uses a church that devotes itself to the means of grace. That's our third point today. God uses a church that devotes itself to the means of grace. Look at chapter 2, verse 42. We find these people who have been baptized giving themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. In one sense, there's no better place in the Bible than Acts 2.42 to support uh, what we believe as a Reformed church about the means of grace. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 88, the question and answer go like this. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption? What are the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption? The answer, the outward means, outward and ordinary means by whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. The word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. And if you look at verse 42, you see that each of these activities mentioned in the catechism are there, these things that build us up in the Christian life. We see uh, the word, uh, the teaching of the apostles. We see the sacraments, the breaking of bread, and we see the prayers. These are not spectacular means. They are ordinary means, but they are effective. They are the things we do as a church. They are the things we should do weekly and even during the week. Now, there have been some different ways that these means of grace have been stated or categorized, and I myself like to use the words, the the, uh, letters W-I-F as I look at Acts 2.42. W stands for worship. I think that's what the prayers are about. It's the worship services probably there uh, where prayer was a central part of that in the sacraments. So W for worship. I for instruction, the doctrine, the teaching of the apostles, and F for fellowship. And I do call your attention that as we you normally talk about the means of grace, we don't often say something about fellowship. But that is tremendously important as a means of growth in our lives. The fellowship of believers, fellowship understood in 
all the dimensions that it has in the scriptures, which, which we won't go into today. But when these things are done well by the church and in accord with God's directions, they attract those becoming Christian, those Christians, those who's, in whose hearts the Holy Spirit is working. They also draw in hungry believers who are longing for spiritual food. Invariably, when I ask people in churches, what has brought you to a particular church? The answer, invariably, is good preaching and loving fellowship. And I would add today that I often hear reverent worship. William Greenhill speaks of what happens when preaching and teaching are lost to the church. He says, where the word of God is not expounded, preached, and applied to the several conditions of the people, there they perish. Lay aside preaching and expounding the scriptures, the people will be scattered, run into airs, wander up and down as sheep without a shepherd. This is also true not only of the preaching, it's most true of the preaching, but a similar statement might be made about the neglect of fellowship and of prayer and of the sacraments, where people don't have these. They fall into air. They wander. And I want you to notice as you look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 42, that the Christians in that day devoted themselves to these things. Notice that word devoted. They committed themselves to that. They were involved in that. They were serious about that. And we must do the same. We must diligently attend to these things. If we lose them, we will lose much more than we can imagine. These are means of grace, which are simple, but profoundly necessary for the Christian and for the Christian church. They lead not only to the sanctification of believers, but also to growth and outreach. As we see at the end of this section, as chapter 2 ends, it says that, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As people watched these Christians after the day of Pentecost, as they saw their pattern, the pattern of their lives, then many others became interested in what this was all about. And they came to find out, and many believed and were saved. May it be so among us. May it be so among you. So let me conclude by just asking you, do you desire for this church to which you belong uh, to be a church that reaches lost people, that disciples them to maturity, and that plants new churches in the vicinity around you? Then devote yourselves to the means of grace. Preach Christ and him crucified and patiently rely on the Holy Spirit. Are these three priorities in your life? Are these three priorities for your church? Are you working together with one another under the leadership of your pastors and elders to see Jesus Christ's kingdom advanced? Jesus is building his church. If we don't participate in that building, we will find, he will find others who will. But if we work in humility for the glory of God, not for our own sakes, we can be part of this great adventure, this great mission of Jesus Christ to win the hearts of people back to God. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church, for the church that you established, that your son Jesus Christ established and filled with his Holy Spirit. We thank you that by your grace, the church has continued on and on through uh, many years of history. And we thank you for this congregation of your people. We thank you for the blessing of its, its uh, 200 years, but also uh, for especially these days and the encouragement that you are giving them. We pray that your grace will be on the pastors and the elders and the other leaders in the church. We pray that this church might continue uh, to use the gifts of its people and to reach out in love to its community and care for one another. We pray that you would bless this church uh, with, with unity, Lord, with truth and with godliness. Lord, we pray that your word might be preached every day, every Lord's day, in a powerful way here, honoring Christ and proclaiming his crucifixion, that many might be saved. And we pray that this church might also uh, send the message out in many ways, in many forms, in the lives and actions of its members, and in the opportunities that they're given to serve and to preach the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the commission that you've given to your church. We pray for your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn now to uh, Psalm 87a. The Lord's foundation has been set upon the holy hills. He loves the gates of Zion more than homes where Jacob dwells. About you glorious things are said, O city of our God. I will make mention of the lands where I am known abroad. And then he goes on to speak of Egypt and Babylon and Ethiopia. This is a psalm about the church, and it has a great foundation. It speaks of at the beginning, the Lord is the foundation, Christ is the foundation, and then it speaks about the Lord's love for his church. And then it goes on to talk about people being born again all over the world. Born in Ethiopia, maybe naturally, but born spiritually from that location too. Or born in Europe, naturally, but born in God in the church and so forth. Psalm 87a, we praise God for what he's doing in his church. Let's stand to sing.